couple of announcements. Uh, first of all, as I pointed out or announced on Sunday, the Camp Arete is coming up, and there uh, we've had three, I think three, scholarships made available through West Houston Bible Church. Also, we need prep school teachers, and then don't forget there'll be a short congregational meeting following the morning service, worship service on Sunday, uh, June the 26th. As far as I know, that's the only um, only announcements I can think of. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lead not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can make sure that uh, you're in fellowship, ready to study the word. Scripture says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that we can be here this evening to study your word, that as we work our way through the entirety of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we have so much to learn, so much to understand, so much that uh, affects and impacts our day-to-day thinking and our response to the issues of life. Father, we pray that as we study this evening that we will continue to be strengthened and encouraged by your word as God the Holy Spirit teaches us and makes these things clear to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to open your Bibles this morning before we get started this evening, rather, to Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah 35 is a chapter and within a section in Isaiah that focuses on the future kingdom of Israel. And it brings out several important aspects, part of which has to do with the doctrine of healing. Now, healing is one of those doctrines that there's a lot of confusion about. And there's all kinds of uh, teaching that goes on today about just turn on the television, go to, I think, locally, it's Channel 14, I don't know what it is, if you are on cable. But you can find all kinds of things Uh, that are taught about healing, everything from uh, the modern health and wealth or prosperity, name it, claim it, movement, whatever term you want to use to describe that, to uh, who knows what else is taught about, about healing. And sometimes it is, um, we we find that if you're not uh, charismatic out of a charismatic tradition, or if you're not even a Christian and you watch some of these 
shows some of these televangelists, it's uh, somewhat humorous. But for many people, it's extremely serious because they're facing life-threatening diseases and they're pushing the panic button in terms of their disease. And it is, has always uh, somewhat uh, amused me in one sense. That may not be the right word. I find it somewhat ironical as I have observed people who I have known for many years, suddenly they get hit with some life-threatening disease or health-threatening disease, and they will spend inordinate amounts of money on anybody who claims that they can cure that disease, whether that involves taking certain kinds of uh, uh, vitamins or organic health treatments or whatever, and I'm not knocking those things, but I'm pointing out that when people get pushed up against the wall or backed into a corner, they will often react in, way, in, in desperation and spend a lot of money on all kinds of things in order to be cured. People who've had strokes, people who have had um, other sorts of contracted other kinds of uh, debilitating diseases will often just uh, reach out in uh, in desperation to find any kind of uh, a possible cure, and often these cures are presented and wrapped in religious framework in some sort of uh, religious option. Especially if it's some uh, somebody's a Christian, then if they've been in an environment all their life where they haven't been, uh, let's say, not non charismatic all of a sudden they'll start going to a charismatic healing service just to see if it might work for them. And on the other hand, you also get Christians who pray and pray and pray and pray that God would deal with some sort of health problem that they're facing and it doesn't change. And so they either become uh, very discouraged and they think that God doesn't listen, God doesn't answer prayer, or they began to heap guilt upon themselves that they're just not praying with enough faith. And so it's not uh, the fact that God's will is for them to live under this type of testing or this kind of situation, or they don't think that, uh, or they think that God is just not answering their prayer for some reason, um, or they, they, they tend to think it's just all their fault, so they heap guilt on themselves. All kinds of things go on. Uh, healing and health problems can be so challenging for people and just being able to survive and being able to live that they often just hit a panic button and they'll do anything to resolve the situation. And so it's important to think through what the Bible says about healing because there are many, many people who are healed in Scripture. Jesus healed many people. The apostles healed many people. But we have to understand why. What was going on? Now, we're going to start in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter uh, 35. It follows chapter 34, which deals with the day of the Lord and the judgment upon the nations. Uh, Chapter 34, verse 8, it's the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. So that helps us to understand the time frame here. This is a future time when God finally brings judgment on all the Gentile nations for the way they have treated Israel. We know that does not come until the end of what we refer to as the tribulation or in Old Testament terms, Daniel's 70th week. But at the time that Isaiah wrote, 
He is looking forward to a time where he has warned Israel they will be taken out of the land in judgment under the Babylonians, and then God will restore them to the land, and they don't understand that there is, that's only going to be a partial restoration. Uh, the scattering is, doesn't end, the diaspora doesn't end, but this is going to go on uh, until the Messiah comes to establish his kingdom, and then there will be a restoration. And that restoration is then described in in chapter 35, and it's a restoration that impacts the land itself. And so there's a description of how the desert uh, will blossom as the rose and that there will be uh, an impact on the health of the people uh, living in the land. And as the Messiah comes, it will have an impact on, and there will be people who will be healed of debilitating, and I'm going to use this term, constitutional defects. And what I mean by that term is that this is an obvious defect, a you know, paralysis, not a that cannot that's not explained as psychosomatic type of paralysis, but it's obvious from some sort of injury, some sort of accident, or it's been that way from birth, or blindness, uh, something that cannot be cured simply like uh, what you see in a lot of these healing services where it's a back problem or neck problem or leg lengthening or things of that uh, of that nature it is a, a well-known obvious uh, a constitutional defect and so we read in verse 5 Isaiah 34 verse 5 and 6 then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. I want you to pay specific attention to that opening line in verse 6. Then the lame shall leap like a deer. We're going to see an example of that when we come into the New Testament. The context here is showing that this is evidence that the Messiah has come and that the kingdom has now been given to Israel. So when we get into the New Testament... And we see Jesus being presented as the king who is offering the kingdom. And we've just finished a series of lessons uh, focusing on the kingdom as sort of a uh, snapshot of that doctrine between our study of Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3 because Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3 continue this offer of the kingdom to Israel. We see that the evidence that the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is near, that the kingdom is is uh, being offered is certain kinds of healing, these, these remarkable healings. And the rabbis believed at the, in the first century that the sign of the Messiah was only the Messiah could cure a leper, only the Messiah could cure, give sight to someone who was, who was blind. And so the healings that we see in the life of, of Jesus and the healings that we see in the, with the apostles into the New Testament period are a particular kind of healing. They are giving messianic or kingdom credentials. They're not just healing people because they're compassionate. They are compassionate in a true sense. They're not just healing people because they can heal people. They are healing because it is giving evidence that the king has come and he is offering the kingdom. So let's move from here to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, and we'll begin in about verse 17. 
All of this is background to understanding what happens at, in the first ten verses of Acts, Acts chapter 3. Luke chapter 5, verse, verse 17. Now it happens on a certain day as he, that is, Jesus was teaching, that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. So that is a remarkable crowd. They have gathered from the north, they've gathered from the south in Judea, and they've gathered from the area around Jerusalem. So they've all come together, and they are observing the Lord, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Now, uh, this is an important note here that sometimes we run, I'm going to make a couple of side comments today just because you need to remember these things. There are things that Jesus did. There are healings that he did. There are times when he cast demons out that he, this text specifically says he did this in the power of the Holy Spirit. There are other times when he healed and when he cast out demons and there's no mention of the Holy Spirit. And it is not legitimate and not uh, necessary to say that, well, because it says he did it with the, by the Holy Spirit over here, then he did it by the Holy Spirit over here. And the reason is, is because in some cases, Jesus is solving a problem by depending on the Holy Spirit rather than depending or demonstrating his own deity. And so in those passages, when he's depending on the Holy Spirit, it is, it is showing his humanity in dependence upon God to solve a problem. In other passages... He is doing it out of his deity, showing that he is fully God and he has sovereignty and authority over the demons. And so it is not legitimate to read uh, universal uh, principles out of those comments when it says that Jesus did certain things by the Spirit, that he always did those things by the Spirit. Because otherwise you end up with all of Jesus' miracles being done by the Spirit and none of his miracles demonstrate that he's God. And then you lose all of that evidence for the fact that he is deity. He is demonstrating that. For example, when he changed the water into wine, that demonstrates that he is the creator and he has authority over uh, the molecules of creation. And so he is able to uh, turn the water into wine, which is a normal process. He just sped it up a little bit. Uh, so that is, that's his authority as God. He doesn't do that by the Holy Spirit. So th that's an important um, hermeneutical issue is not to uh, get invo involved in what they call, uh, it's a form of what is called illegitimate totality transfer. It's a form of transfer where you're taking something from one context and you're transferring it uh, over to another. So when he does this, it's the power of the Lord to heal them. It's his power. It's specifically stating it's, it's not the Holy Spirit. He's not doing this by the Holy Spirit. He's doing it in his power because he's presenting himself as the, as the uh, divine king. Then we're told in verse 18, Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. Now, if you've ever seen, and I didn't get a picture of this, but if you've ever been to to uh, Israel, especially if you've been to Capernaum and you look down on on the ruins of the foundations and the walls are still there of the the city at the time of Jesus, the walls are about two or three feet high. Uh, 
the houses and the domiciles were all very close together, and if if uh, and sometimes it was difficult to get into a house because it was it was like what we used to call in Texas shot, a shotgun house, narrow, one room after another. And if Jesus is in the back room, everybody was trying to get to him by going through the front three or four rooms. And so to get past the crowd, what they did was they went up on the roof, went back, took the tiles off the roof, and let this uh, paralyzed man down from the roof so that they could get past all the, the multitudes to get to Jesus. Verse 19, um, excuse me, verse 20. When he saw their faith... Uh, he, that is Jesus, said to him, that is the paralyzed man, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, he hasn't had any discussion with him. Is the, does the man who is on the, on the, on the, um, uh, uh, who's laid out there, is he, on the man on the bed, is, 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 is he expressed faith? Maybe. We're not sure. Obviously, those who are with him, who are bringing him to Jesus, have faith. They believe Jesus can heal him. That's why they're bringing him to Jesus. But we don't really know anything about him. And I'll make a point later on as we go through uh, the examples of of, uh, healing in Scripture. Sometimes the people who are healed believe Jesus, and they are trusting in him to heal them. And other times, they don't have any faith. They don't even know who Jesus is. He just comes up and heals, heals them. We're not sure, really, we're not given enough information about him because the text says when he saw their faith, that it, and that refers to the ones who let him down uh, through the roof. Verse 21, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? See, remember the point I made initially? It's Jesus' power that's going to heal him because Jesus is demonstrating that he has the authority to forgive sins, which is a divine attribute alone. So he's not doing, if he's doing the healing in his humanity and dependence upon the Holy Spirit, then it would contradict the principle he's teaching, which is that he has the power and authority to forgive sins. He is going to heal him because it's real easy. The answer he's going to give is, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier to say, stand up and walk, and have the man stand up and walk? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because nobody has any empirical evidence there whether the sins are forgiven or not. So Jesus is, is going to validate the fact that he has the authority to forgive the sins of this uh, paralyzed man by commanding him to get up and walk, and the man can get up and walk, and he does so instantly. There's no recovery time. He doesn't get up and have to go through a uh, six-week system of physical therapy to be able to uh, walk again. He doesn't have to go through any sort of exercises to strengthen the muscles again that have atrophied over uh, a period of time. And so Jesus is making it clear that he has the authority to forgive sins because he is God. This is another one of those passages that emphasizes the uh, deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, with that for background, those two passages, and and it's evidence, too, that he is, of course, the Messiah. The Messiah is in their midst because he is healing the lame and the lame can walk. 
Now let's turn to our passage in Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Now this takes place sometime after the events in Acts chapter 2 when Peter has, uh, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter has um, given that first message. And as I pointed out when we went through the section from verse uh, 36 on down to the end of the chapter that there's a definite millennial context there. The idea of the command to repent is clearly, it goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 2, to turn back to God. It is a Jewish-oriented message. It is not a uh, gospel offer as we normally think of a gospel offer. It is specifically tailored in terminology that is unique to the Mosaic law and is designed to, to precede the get coming of the kingdom. Uh, in Acts, I mean, in uh, Deuteronomy 30, verse 2, God said, When you turn back to me, then I will bring everybody back, all the Jews back from all the nations where I have scattered them and establish, reestablish you in the land. And so this is a kingdom offer. And we're going to get that again in chapter 3. Just as a reminder, I also pointed out that as they all lived together and shared their goods communally, that is not an endorsement of socialism or communism. It was a recognition of the people that the kingdom was about to come. And when the king came, according to the Old Testament, there would be a restoration of all the tribes to their tribal allotment in the full uh, land that God had promised them. And so all the land and title deeds were going to be reapportioned according to their tribal heritage and everything else. So it didn't really matter if I held on to my measly little piece of real estate today or gave it up because the kingdom is going to get established very soon, and when that happens, all the title deeds are going to be rearranged according to the uh, traditional allotments, and so everything will change. That's why they, were, they had that kind of mentality. Okay, so we come a few days later. The text is not clear. The Greek text simply says, and or now, it's just a continuation of the narrative Uh, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer. And the verb there in the Greek and the verbs in these first two verses are in the imperfect tense, which indicates continuing action in past time. Now, one uh, nuance of the imperfect tense is a customary nuance. So this was their day-to-day custom, which is, Uh, also going to be reinforced in the second verse when it talks about bringing the lame man uh, to the temple, that they did it daily. The word daily shows up, and that reinforces the idea that this was something that occurred on a day-to-day basis. But that's that's also can be expressed through uh, through the use of the imperfect tense. So this is just showing that as part of the practice of the church, they gathered together, they would gather together at the temple, and they would pray. And so it's time for the hour of prayer, which was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon uh, before the evening sacrifice. And so it was the custom of the disciples to go to the uh, temple. Since the temple was on a slightly elevated piece of land, which was part of Mount Moriah, uh, that's why it uses the verb they went up because it's very geographical. So Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Now, the temple 
is going to be a major part here of the scene, so we need to understand the temple just a little bit. So I've brought together some different diagrams to help us understand a little bit the size and nature of the second temple. This was Herod's um, renovation of the older Zerubbabel temple, and Herod was just a architectural genius. What he did at Caesarea by the Sea in terms of building an artificial harbor was just beyond anything that was seen in the ancient world. And so he wanted to rebuild the temple, the Zerubbabel temple, and he established his huge foundation on the on the Temple Mount, and then he was going to build this that would be uh, just an architectural marvel. Well, this first chart sh- shows the temple size comparisons, and if you look over on the left column, we have the tabernacle size in the dark brown, a little bit lighter brown, we have the size of Solomon's temple. Uh, the green here is the size of an American football field. So Solomon's temple and the court of the, t- and the and the tabernacle itself were somewhat smaller than a typical American football field, about half the size or so. Then the blue square here represents Herod's temple. So we see how much larger the temple mount was and the temple precincts were. This would include the outer courtyards, how much larger that area was at the uh, time of Herod. It's much larger, about a half again the size of an American football field. And then this large dark brown square at the bottom represents the size of the temple that Ezekiel prophesied in Ezekiel chapters uh, 48 and following. The right side shows a slightly different uh, markup of the same thing. Here, this blue rectangle here represents the size of, uh, of Herod's temple. And even that did not, that doesn't incorporate courtyards that were to the uh, north and to the south of that, that particular area. We'll see that in the, in the next slide. Now, in this slide, we have, see, this is the area to the north and the area to the south that I said was not in the other diagram. That diagram just focused on this rectangle here, which would be the temple uh, temple precincts uh, itself. You had the hekal, which is the temple. That's the uh, Hebrew word for the temple, for the house of God. Uh, outside, you had the altar. So this was the area into which only the priests and only Jewish men could go. There's a gate right here. Then there is the court of the women out here, and the women could only go that far. And then there is another gate here. This was called the Corinthian gate because of the Corinthian brass that was used. There's quite beautiful. So many people, as I'll point out in a minute, think that was the beautiful gate. Then you had the eastern gate, in the wall here, which was called the Shushan Gate. So this just gives you a little bit of a schematic uh, up to the north. The top, you had the uh, Mark Antony uh, barracks. Down here to the south, you had the uh, hold the gates, the entryway. All of this is the outer section, no longer evident today. You have various steps, and the mikvah or mikvahot are located down in this area. We've seen those. I've shown you some of those pictures. Now, here's a, another diagram. This is out of the uh, uh, Logos production, and I've circled th- the three different gates. This is the Shushan gate, uh, 
that is located on the, this is the eastern gate, uh, located on the outside here. And then as you went in, you would go from the courtyard of the Gentiles outside of the temple itself into another gate, which was identified as the Corinthian gate because of its beauty and the material that had come from Corinth. And then you would go through another gate, this gate here, that would go into the area where only the Jewish men could go and the priests could go, and this was called the Nicanor Gate, those three different gates. So when the text here says that this was at the gate beautiful in verse 2, we don't really know which one of these gates that was. Up until the, um, up until the 5th century A.D., uh, the Shushan Gate and the Eastern Wall, uh, or rather uh, since the 5th century, this gate, the Shushan Gate, has been the gate that's been identified as the uh, Gate Beautiful. Uh, it was not this gate going into the temple, uh, in the inner temple area itself, but in recent years, it's many scholars believe it was this particular gate because the material that was used uh, to construct that gate was made of Corinthian bronze, and it was uh, the the uh, work that was done on it was far exceeded the work that was done on the the metal work that was done on the other gates. However, we don't have anything specific in any other literature to identify this. Josephus does not identify it. He just describes the gates. He doesn't give us uh, a name. Uh, such as beautiful gate. So it's most likely to be this gate uh, that they went in. It could be this gate, but this would be the one which would get the most, uh, would get a great deal of traffic, as it were. Here's another diagram of the gate, identifying this gate here, the Corinthian gate, as the gate beautiful. And then I've got a couple of other pictures here. This gives you an idea of, uh, of the area itself. This was the eastern gate here. This would be what we're identifying as the gate beautiful, and this would be the Nicanor gate going into the inner, uh, inner precinct of the temple. The other thing I want to show you is from this model, you're looking at it from the other side, and you see the portico all along here, and these were various uh, booths that were used for different things as well as over here, and so the area where Peter conducts this sermon is probably outside in this area going over into the Gentile courtyard. So it involves either this area or this area over here. And so you'd get a large crowd of people out in the courtyard of the Gentiles. And this sort of gives you another view of how, um, how large the area It's a huge area. If you've ever been up there, this, this is much larger, I think, than the than the Dome of the Rock, but it still gives you a pretty good idea. It covers the whole area, which is now the Haram el-Sharif, where the Dome of the Rock's located. All right, back in our text. We're told in verse 2, And a certain lame man from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. So this was something that went on on a day-to-day -day basis. One phrase I just want to point out to you is the phrase from his, mother's, uh, from his mother's womb. This is a Greek phrase. It's a preposition ek, 
plus the uh, Greek word for womb, which is koilea. So it's ek plus the genitive of koilea, which is koileus, and it is most literally translated in the King James, New King James, and New American Standard translations, literally from the mother's womb. But in most modern translations, the uh, ESV, New, New International Version, the uh, NET, I checked two or three others, translate it correctly as from birth. It's not talking about what was a, a condition that existed in the womb. It is talking about the beginning of his life, which is from birth. And this is based on an Old Testament idiom, mibetan, uh, me being the Hebrew preposition men or from, and the word womb, betan. And there was, and it, the, the Jew, Jews had to use a circumlocution to describe birth because in Hebrew, well, let, let me back up a minute. In the phrase from birth, you have two words. From is a preposition, and birth is the noun object of the preposition. So the object of the preposition is expressed in a noun. In Hebrew, there is no noun for birth. There is a verb for birth to be born, but there is no noun for birth. So they had to use an idiom or circumlocution, which just means another way of, you know, circum, like circumvent, circumscribe, to go around the meaning of the word. So they had to come up with another way of going around the meaning to say it. And so they said, from birth. Now, when you get into passages in Jeremiah, Isaiah, where the prophet talks about being called from his mother's womb, uh, there are those who want to translate that as in the womb. It's the same language. And it always irritates me that you find these translators now who are consistent in the New Testament uh, translating uh, things such as the Holy Spirit came upon John the Baptist from birth, and now here they're translated from birth because these passages aren't passages that are normally debated in the uh, uh, abortion debate issue. So they're ignored. Well, when they're not controversial, we're going to translate it what it means from birth. But in those other passages, we're, we're going to translate it in the womb. doesn't mean in the womb. If in Hebrew there was a noun for conception, and so there, were, there was the vocabulary in Hebrew to express the phrase from conception. And so the parameters of life, as we see throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, are expressed by the phrase from birth and death. You don't have from conception to death. Now, that's important in terms of the whole uh, abortion debate that we have today that life begins at birth. It doesn't begin at conception. You have biological life in the womb, but you don't have soul life in the womb. The soul was not imparted to the uh, fetus until birth when it became a full human being. And this was the traditional Jewish interpretation. I've gone through this in detail in previous lessons where I've quoted from the Encyclopedia of Judaism explaining all this. And, and the view that I hold, and it's, the, it's the, old, the, the old Jewish view, not the modern Jewish view, but the old Jewish view, and I don't even mean the Old Testament view. It was the uh, view for centuries, and that is that what happens once you have conception is, unless there is interference, uh, unless God determines otherwise, it's going to end up being a full human being. And because that is the normal progress 
it's not moral or ethical for man to interfere with that process. Notice I didn't say it was illegal because it's never expressed to be illegal in the Mosaic Law. It was, but it wasn't, uh, so that would mean that abortion wasn't approved as something that is moral or ethical, but it was not considered murder because in the Jewish view, the soul did not enter into the body until until birth, and so life has as its parameters birth and death, and this is indicated in the vocabulary. Now, that's just a, if you haven't heard any of my lessons on that, then you need to go back and listen to those, but that's just kind of a brief overview, simply because we have this same phrase here, and I thought it was uh, fascinating to realize that most of these modern translations in Lagos, their own publication, the Lexham English Bible, the... Um, New, new, uh, what is it, the new uh, English Bible, the Net Bible, the ESV, the NIV, all translate this phrase as being from birth, not indicating anything going on inside the womb. But that does not, nece- that does not mean that the, what is called the creationist at birth position, which is the dominant view of the origin of the soul and the origin of human life throughout church history, that that's a view that validates or advocates for abortion. It does not. It is simply a view that emphasizes when the full process of the development of a human being takes place. It begins with physical development within the womb, and then the soul uh, is imparted by God at, at birth, and that is when you have a full human being. And my only point is that it's not murder until you have a full human being present. But that does not mean it is uh, ethical or moral or legitimate to interfere in the process unless there are extenuating, uh, serious extenuating circumstances. So in verse 3 we read that after this lame man is brought up, he would, they would take him and he would sit outside the gate and he would beg for alms. This was an expected and uh, procedure, an accepted procedure in Israel. And he would beg for alms from all those who entered the temple. And when he saw Peter and John coming along, just another couple of men coming to uh, worship at the temple, he asked them for alms, at which time he got something uh, a little bit more uh, than what he expected or what he anticipated. And he uh, looked at them, and John uh, is with Peter. This is the Apostle John. It's not John Mark. Uh, only eight times do we have the Apostle John mentioned in Acts. And he never says anything. He's always in the company of Peter, but he never talks. Now, you have other references to John Mark. You have other references to John the Baptist, but there's only eight references to the Apostle John. And so Peter looks at the uh, uh, lame man, and he fixes his gaze upon him and makes sure he has his full attention And he says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And so he gives him a command to instantly stand up and to walk. Now this is a man who is, we know, has been uh, lame since birth, over 40 years. He has been lame. Everybody knows he's lame. There's everybody in Jerusalem knows he's He's lame. He has never walked in his entire life. So this is a legitimate constitutional defect. He didn't just have a psychosomatic problem. 
He had never in his entire life walked. His legs were probably atrophied and withered, and he had never figured out how to use all of those dozens of muscles, and Jay will let me know just exactly how many muscles there are for him to be able to walk here before long. And he instantly put it all together, put to, and everything functioned in terms of the balance and everything else that was required, and he doesn't just get up and walk. Just like Isaiah 35 prophesied, he is leaping like a deer. He is leaping for joy, and he is bouncing all around the courtyard of the Gentiles, and people are just astounded because they recognize who he is, and, and, and this is one of the most astounding things that they have ever uh, ever witnessed. And in verse, um, verse 7, we read that, that Peter reached out, took him by the right hand, lifted him up. Immediately, his feet and ankle bones received strength. This is a miracle from God. And he leaps up, he stood, and he walked and entered the temple with him, walking, leaping, and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God in verse 9. Then they, and they knew, they recognized him, knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Now, as a result of that, word rapidly sp spreads, and people are coming from all over Jerusalem to find out what has happened, and to witness this astounding, uh, astounding miracle. Now, the application for us, the question for us is, does God heal like this today? Uh, why, and if so, why don't we see it? Well, we have to understand this doctrine of healing, so I want to address it in just a couple of questions. First of all, does God heal today? And the second question, why did Jesus and the apostles heal? And then third... Was faith necessary in order to be healed? And the reason I ask that question is because, it's very uh, from my own personal experience, is that when I was a, uh, a child, uh, and my mother had had polio, as many of you know, and she would get up on her uh, crutches and try to walk uh, periodically, and go, utilize and practicing all these various uh, exercises they had taught her out at Warm Springs. And I would pray with the faith of a child. They always, somebody always comes along with that little guilt trip and says, well, brother, if you just prayed with the faith of a child, then God would answer that prayer. And I had the faith of a child. I was a child, and I firmly believed God could uh, allow my mother to walk again. And I prayed that for years. Every night when I would say my prayers before I would go to bed, I would pray that God would uh, give my mother the strength to walk again. And so, and I never once felt like it was uh, my problem because I didn't have enough faith. Uh, but that's the guilt trip that people often uh, are put under, so that's why I raise that question as well. There are other questions that I could raise, but we'll just look at these three. Does God heal today? Why did Jesus and the apostles heal? And third, was faith necessary in order to be healed? So let's just look at this first question. Does God heal today? Now, we've seen in our study of Scripture from the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament through the New Testament God, that God healed throughout history. We have examples of God healing among the wilderness generation when they were bitten by those serpents who had a fiery bite, a venomous bite out in the wilderness, and God instructed uh, Moses to uh, make a bronze 
uh, image of a serpent and hold it up high so the people who looked at it would be instantly healed. So that is one example of God's healing in the Old Testament. We have other examples of Elijah uh, raising the uh, widow's son back to life. We have another example of Elisha uh, raising the um, uh, woman's son back to life. And there are other examples of Elisha healing the uh, Naaman the Syrian of his leprosy. So there are examples of God healing at different times in the Old Testament. Now here's a question for you. Did the Old Testament prophets have the gift of healing? Did Elijah and Elisha have the spiritual gift of healing? No. How do you know that? Spiritual gift is for church-age believers. You don't have spiritual gifts in the Old Testament. See, that's a trick question just to see if you're paying attention. Uh, God uh, gave them authority in certain instances where they exercised that, but not like, a, not, not like somebody who had the gift of healing would in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 12 that the, in the early church, there were some people who were given a spiritual gift of healing. And that would be somewhat akin to a person who had the spiritual gift of evangelism, a person who had the spiritual gift of giving, a person who had the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher. It would be dependent upon their volition how they exercised that gift. So that if I had the spiritual gift of healing, then I could go down to St. Luke's Hospital and I could walk through the halls of St. Luke's and heal everybody because it would be dependent upon my exercise of the spiritual gift before God. It was not uh, something that was, was restricted. So it, the spiritual gift of healing for the early church was something that was very different from what was experienced in the Old Testament or even what Jesus and the apostles were doing in the, um, in the early church. So we see from the examples of Scripture that we have two different ways in which God heals historically. He either heals indirectly or another word would be mediately. Uh, that is, he would heal uh, <clears throat> through an agent. He would heal through an agent. So he heals through uh, Elijah, he heals through Elisha, and other cases where God would heal directly would be where God is asked to heal somebody in prayer and then God directly heals the other person without uh, doing it through an, a prophet or an intermediate uh, agent. There's two categories of healing that God uses. One is supernatural, which are the examples that I've given you. And another would be through natural means, where somebody who is ill and they take medicine, uh, God can he God heals, but He does it through uh, uh, pharmacological means. That's just as much the work of God healing. We pray for somebody who has cancer, and they go to the hospital and they go through uh, chemotherapy or radiation or whatever the. Uh, uh, medical therapy could, uh, would be or what's called for, and God heals them. And I know of cases where people have gone through, um, they've had certain kinds of cancer that were very difficult to cure, and the doctor said, well, I don't know whether you need one round of chemotherapy or ten rounds of chemotherapy. We're just going to do what we can do. 
And one individual I know of, after the second or third round, made him so sick, he said, well, it's just in God's hands now, and the cancer never recurred. So uh, God can heal uh, indirectly through medicine, or he can also heal uh, directly in a supernatural way, which is, what, uh, which is abnormal. The normal way is natural. The natural way should not be called miraculous. If somebody has cancer and it is termed to be terminal and they go through various uh, radiation or medical treatments and the cancer is healed as a result of, of God's intervention, it's not a miracle because God used the normal, natural healing processes in healing the individual. A miracle, by definition, is when God operates, he stops or halts or ceases normal operational, what we would call laws of nature or laws of science. It is a miracle for Peter to walk on the water because the normal laws of science are subverted. It is a miracle for Jesus to heal the blind man because the normal uh, processes are subverted. It is not a miracle for a surgeon to go in and perform surgery and reconnect the, uh, the nerve endings in the eye so that the individual has restored sight. That is operating within the norm of, of physical science. We have to be careful that way because what happens if you call all of those things that are done via a doctor or medical treatment a miracle, you've completely diluted the word miracle. And a miracle is something that is profound and completely outside any sort of normal, natural means. And so when people look at certain things, they say, oh, that's a miracle, and it's not, it's just normal processes at work, then what happens is that you've diluted the whole concept of direct divine uh, intervention aside from the normal uh, processes. So it's supernatural when God heals directly. Uh, so the question is, does God heal today? And that's the, that's the wrong question. That's like uh, what I always say is don't, uh, uh, don't always answer questions until you clarify them because you may get yourself in trouble. Questions like, uh, have you stopped beating your wife today? Uh, does God heal today? Yes, he does. But let's talk about it before we answer it that way. I want to know where the person is coming from because if they're coming out of a certain background, what they're really asking is, uh, are, the, are the healings that we see on television legitimate? Probably not. But that doesn't mean God doesn't heal today. Uh, God does not heal today through uh, the inter intermediate means of people with the gift of healing. He heals directly uh, or uh, indirectly but he, through medicine, but he doesn't heal indirectly through people who have the spiritual gift of healing. So the issue is, how has God revealed that he heals today? Uh, has God revealed that we should expect intervention in our illnesses, diseases, and deformities as a normal experience in the Christian life? Now, that's the real issue. That's where it starts getting down to really understanding what's happening with disease. We live in the devil's world. Everything is deformed and distorted in the devil's world. There was no disease in the world of Adam and Eve before the fall. Disease is a result 
of the effect of sin and the curse of sin on a fallen world so that now there is disease and there's deformity that occurs. Uh, You have birth defects, you have uh, injuries, you have all kinds of other things. Now, is it, should we expect God to intervene in our illnesses, diseases, and deformities as a normal experience of the Christian life? No, we should not. We're not to expect, should we be praying in our particular circumstance? Sure, there's nothing wrong with that. God may be making an example of you. Ask not, uh, you have not because you ask not, James says. So we never know when we might pray and God is, will answer and we will see a, uh, something out of the ordinary take place. Now that leads us into the next question, which is, why did Jesus and the apostles heal? And also as part of that um, was faith or even salvation, a prerequisite for healing. Why did Jesus heal? First of all, Jesus healed in order to present his messianic credentials. The kingdom is near. The king is going to give evidence of his uh, messianic credentials by healing according to the predictions of the Old Testament. Passages such as Isaiah 42, 7, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Uh, Isaiah 29:18. on that day the deaf shall hear words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. So Jesus presents these credentials, uh, Isaiah 35, 4 through 6, uh, which I just uh, mentioned at the opening, also indicate the credentials of the Messiah. Uh, Healings were never performed gratuitously. Jesus didn't perform just for the physical benefit itself, just because he saw someone that needed to be healed. Now, there were times when Jesus is out with a mass audience and they're bringing the sick and the demon-possessed and the blind and the lepers to him, and he's healing large numbers of people. But he's doing that because he is presenting himself as the Messiah. You don't find Jesus, on the, except for one time when he goes down to the pool of Bethesda, uh, you don't see Jesus walking through the hospital wards healing everybody. You don't see the apostles doing the same thing. They are healing discriminately. They are healing only a few. They're not healing everyone. And that tells us something because according to Scripture, God is not trying to alleviate all of the pain and suffering and heartache and difficulty that we face in life because that serves a purpose within God's plan today. We have examples of Jesus' healing in Matthew eight seventeen, which specifically says that he did this, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. That's from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. So it is done to indicate his messianic credentials. In Matthew uh, 9, 6, uh, the parallels are Mark 2.10 and Luke 5.24. We looked at Luke 5 a minute ago. That's where the uh, paralyzed man was told that his sins were forgiven, and then he was told to get up and walk. So that's to show that Jesus is God and can forgive sins. Matthew 11, uh, 2 through 19, uh, is when John the Baptist sent uh, his messengers to, to Jesus, said, are, are you really the Messiah? Is the kingdom really about to come? And Jesus said to tell 
uh, John, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor of the gospel preach to them. In other words, the evidence, evidences of the kingdom are associated with my ministry. So tell John that you see these things, and he will know that I am the Messiah. Matthew twelve fifteen to 21 also foreshadowed a fulfillment of Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. So these healings were all intended to demonstrate that he's the Messiah. In John 9, 3, he healed the blind man to show that he was the light of the world. Only Jesus healed the blind. Nobody else healed blind people. It's a specific messianic sign. In John eleven four, the healing is to demonstrate, or the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus from the dead is to demonstrate the glory of God. In John 20, 30 to 31, uh, the resurrection of, uh, of Jesus is a sign to demonstrate uh, that he is the Messiah. And in Acts 2.22, uh, uh, God the Father authenticated Jesus' claims. That's related to the resurrection. Second point here, Jesus' miracles were not performed randomly or indiscriminately. He did not always heal those who needed healing or perform on demand, but he healed to fulfill the plan of God. Uh, Third point is when he healed, it was immediate or within minutes. He would just look and say, you're healed, and they were healed. Then it wasn't a process. They didn't have to learn. They didn't have to go through therapy. It wasn't a three-month recovery process. It was immediate. Uh, Fourth, there was an abundance of healings, Matthew 5, 31. Uh, He healed by touch, command, and even the touch of his cloak, and through uh, spit, Mark 8, 22 to 26. And then six, not all who were healed expressed faith or were saved. Passage of John 5, Luke 17, 11 to 19, and others. Um, B, in terms of the apostles, their healing, the example we have here, also established their credentials. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. And Acts 3 and Acts 4 Peter and John uh, healed the lame man in this episode to gain a hearing for the gospel. And at the conclusion of this episode, see in Acts 4, we have the beginning, we ha- or Acts 3, at the beginning we have the healing. Second half of the chapter, we have Peter's sermon. Chapter 4, they get picked up and taken to the Sanhedrin, and they get interrogated. And then it's not until the uh, middle of chapter 5 that the episode actually ends. And we're told that the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. That's that area of the colonnades around the temple. Now, there are several examples. I'm just going to run through these. Uh, There's many examples where faith was not in the recipient of the healing. Uh, The nobleman's son in John 4, 46 to 54, the nobleman comes to Jesus to heal his son, but there's no evidence that the son has any faith in Jesus. The cripple at Bethesda just gets told by Jesus to pick up his pallet and walk. He's not a believer until after he's healed. The demon-possessed man in Capernaum on the Sabbath is not uh, a believer at all until after he is healed. The paralyzed man is healed. His friends had faith, but there's no evidence that he had faith. The centurion's servant is healed in Matthew 8, 5 to 13. The centurion had faith, but there's no evidence the servant had faith. The blind and the mute man in Matthew 12, 22 uh, do not have any indication of faith. 
The Gadarene demoniacs had no evidence of faith. They wanted Jesus to leave them alone. Uh, the deaf, mute, demon-possessed man in Matthew 9 wanted Jesus to leave him alone, and uh, he's not a believer, has no faith. Uh, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Uh, the people there were hungry. They had no evidence uh, that they were trusting in God to feed them. They were grumbling and complaining because they were getting hungry. The same thing with the 4,000. Uh, healing the Canaanite woman's daughter falls in the same category. The mother had faith, not the daughter. So those are just many examples where the person who's healed has no faith. Um, Here's some other examples, the deaf-mute in Decapolis, the demon-possessed boy. This is the best example, is Malchus's ear. Malchus is the servant to the high priest who comes out with the uh, Romans to arrest Jesus, and Peter cuts his ear off. And Jesus reaches down, grabs his ear, and puts it back on. He had no faith whatsoever. Jesus heals him. You don't have to have faith to be healed by God. It wasn't a requirement. The blind men in Matthew 9... Uh, nine of the ten lepers did not respond in faith. Uh, only one of them responded in faith. Now, there are also many examples where faith was present in the recipient. The leper in Matthew 8, 2 through 4. Uh, the, cripple, the, the one with the crippled hand in Matthew 12, 9 to 13. Uh, Peter walking on the water. That's a miracle. Uh, it's not healing, but he walks on the water. Faith was required. Uh, the man born blind in John 9. Believing uh, believes in Jesus. Uh, Bartimaeus in Matthew 20, 29 to 35, believes in Jesus. The woman with the hemorrhage in Matthew uh, 9, 20 to 22. Uh, one of the ten lepers has faith. Luke 17. Um, the miraculous catch of fish in Luke 5. And the second miraculous catch of fish in John 21. So in answer to the question, why are they healing here? going to come out in the message. Peter's going to interpret it. The times of refreshing have come. This is the sign of the Messiah. If you repent, he will say, when he gets down to uh, verse 30, verse 19, he says, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that the times of refreshing may come. That's a code word for the, for the kingdom. Uh, so the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The healing is a sign that the kingdom can come. The Messiah has come. But it's up to you, to his Jewish audience, to fulfill Matthew, I mean Deuteronomy 30, verse 2, to turn back to God. This isn't a church age invitation to trust in Jesus in the sense that it becomes later on. It is oriented to that uh, messianic claim to accept Jesus as Messiah so the kingdom can come. Let's bow our heads. We'll come back next time and look at Peter's sermon and understand uh, the details of that as we go forward. Father, thank you for this time to study your word this evening. We pray that you would help us to understand these things and that as we understand what your word teaches about healing, that we can use that as we minister to others who are undergoing difficulties, especially uh, in terms of their own physical health, to uh, trust you no matter what and that even if your plan calls for them to be sick, even for a long period of time, that that is just an opportunity to glorify, uh, glorify you in the way they respond to their trial. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.